0: We're in uh, chapter seven. Uh, God willing, we'll finish chapter seven uh, today. Although I'm not sure we will. This is uh, one of the more significant chapters in Jesus' public ministry. I want to pick up uh, in verse 14, chapter seven. Although we covered a little bit of that last week, that's uh, we jumped at. We had to jump out in the middle of the paragraph. So anyway, just to remind that is. Uh, uh, focus of jesus he's back in jerusalem for the feast of the tabernacle called feast of the booths it was a feast that celebrated the 40 years of wilderness wanderings uh, uh by israel after uh, be, after the exodus and right before the conquest well anyway uh it the importance is not feast it's what's going on if you look at verse 14 uh, it tells us about the middle of the week. Jesus went up into the temple, which means, and this goes back to the beginning of the paragraph, Jesus did not go down with his brothers, who asked him to go down to Jerusalem. He went on his own time, as last week, the father's kairos, the father's time, not the time of his brothers or any obeying his father. And so it's the middle of the week, uh, the Feast of Booths is a seven-day feast, seven-day uh, celebration. And so he's in the middle of it. He's in the temple, in Temple Mount. And it tells us in verse 14, he began teaching. The Jews, therefore, marveled, saying, how is it that this man was learning when he has never studied? And we talked about that last week. He never went to seminary. He didn't study under Gamaliel, the, first, the great rabbi of the first century, or anyone else. Jesus' response in verse 16, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me, the Father's. If, anyone wills, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching from God or whether I am speaking on authority. Uh, we talked about that last week, but to remind you, the point Jesus is making, anyone's will is to do God's will. That is a statement of faith. If your will is to do God's will, that is an affirmation of your faith. I want to do the will of God in my life. He will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. So another way of phrasing that, verse 15, is a faith commitment is necessary to understand the teaching of Jesus, to understand the source of, of Jesus' teaching. He didn't just make this up. He isn't some some uh, crazy man or some lunatic or, or so. Um, he is a true teacher speaking with the authority of God. Okay, that's kind of where we left off. Verse 18, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there's no falsehood. Again, Jesus has said this over and over again, I do not do my own glory, seek my own glory. I seek the glory of the Father. That reminds us in John chapter 5, 19 through 24, the Father and Son do not act independent of one another. The Father and Son act together in an interdependent, mutual pursuit of the redemptive plan And the mutual glory that they share is, of course, the glory that God and God alone deserves. Verse 19, has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? Which is, wow, quite an accusatory statement but yet it's at the heart of what really is going on in the confrontation that the Lord Jesus continues to have with the Jewish leadership. They charge him with violating the law of Moses, and as you know, primarily, and almost always foundationally, the Sabbath. But he says to them, you don't keep the law. (laughs) So there's that hypocritical irony of what the Lord is constantly pointing out to them. So his natural response is a rhetorical question. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, not the Jewish leadership, the crowd. You have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? So they're responding incredulously. They're they're responding, why are you telling us this? We're not trying to kill you. Well, the crowds aren't, but the leadership is. Jesus answered, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Now, because of what he says in verse 23, that one work, he's referring back to the healing of the invalid man at the Pool of Bethesda in chapter 5. He did that on the Sabbath intentionally. We talked about that a number of weeks ago. You marvel at that. Verse 22 Moses gave you circumcision, John adds, not that's from Moses, but from the fathers, meaning Abraham, Genesis 17, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man received circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well again, Referring back to the miracle we studied in John chapter 5. Now, before we look at 24, do you understand what Jesus is doing? He is pointing out the hypocrisy of the Jewish leadership. He's pointing out the hypocrisy of them charging him with violating the Sabbath. There, there, Jesus is pointing out the inconsistency of what these people are charging for Jesus. And yet he says, do you not circumcise a man on the Sabbath? Which is true. If a baby is born and eight days later, it's the Sabbath, they will circumcise that boy, regardless of it being on the Sabbath. Are they working? Well, no, because they're obeying the law of Moses. They're circumcising. Jesus says, That is hypocritically inconsistent. Why are you upset with me? Because I choose to heal a man, make, in the words of Jesus, in verse 23, make his whole body well on the Sabbath. And so Jesus is really driving home what he, the point he made in verse 19, you do not keep the law. You are so so legalistically committed to this Sabbath and your interpretation of the Sabbath that there's no room for compassion, no room for grace, no room for mercy, which was that I have shown to that man. Again, referring to the miracle in in chapter 5. So Jesus concludes, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Jim? That is a profound challenge by
1: Jesus. I have a question for you, Jim. The crowd the crowd, use, the crowd uses the word demon. Um, Christ said in a prior verse that we studied, have I not chosen all of you, and yet one of you is a devil? Can you... Uh, does <laughs> the crowd use the word demon? You are a devil, demon. Why do they do that?
0: Well, i i think it's I think it's just a a response to what Jesus has said to them. Why do you seek to kill me? They're using hyperbole there. They're using exaggeration, and it's it's like they're saying you're crazy. You, you have a demon. We're not trying to kill you, which is. Accurate in terms of the crowd, we learned earlier that the Pharisees, the leadership, is trying to kill him. We saw that at the end of five. We saw that in chapter six. So it's not a theological statement that the crowd is making. You you have a demon. It's exaggeration. It's like saying you're crazy. You, you have a demon. We're not trying to kill you, and in that sense, they're not. I mean, the crowds at this point are not trying to kill Jesus. The crowds are just following him and watching these fantastic things he does and listening to his teaching. So that's that's the nature of verse 20. It's an exaggerated, hyperbolic statement on the part of the crowd. That, You're crazy. We're not trying to kill you. You have a demon. We're trying to kill you. And so, I mean, that's what's going on there. It's it's not a theological uh, charge they're making. Okay.
1: So, yes, and, and so they're just following the, the leadership's uh, theme. Is that...
0: Well, yeah, yeah but, I mean, again, I, it, it's, it's their response. We're not trying to kill you. The leaders are, but we're not trying to kill you. You're crazy. What, why are you saying this? You're, you're talking like a demonic, possessed person. We're not trying to kill you. It's the crowds responding because it's leadership that has hatched the plot, uh, reached the conclusion, begin to lay out the plan to kill Jesus, which is what's, of course, going to happen later, later in the book of John. Let me look at verse 24 um, again. I mean, look at, that's, that's a principle. It's something that specifically applies to this situation where the crowds and and so on are making these extraordinary statements and claims about Jesus. And he's trying to show both in terms of leadership and in terms of the general people of Israel, you're hypocritical. You're upset when something happens on the Sabbath like healing a man, but if your son is born and eight days later is the Sabbath, you're going to circumcise him. And he's trying to show the inconsistency and the hypocrisy of a legalistic approach to righteousness. You understand that sentence? He's trying to show the inconsistency and the hypocrisy of a legalistic approach to righteousness, that what I do merits God's favor. And so Jesus then, in verse 24, floats a rather magnificent and quite marvelous and quite applicational principle. Don't judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. And the book of Proverbs, again, just as a principle of life, the Proverbs have much to say about this. You know, first appearances, your, your first impression your 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 first evaluation of something may not be right. You need more information. You need more perspective to make a right judgment, again, using the words of Jesus. So it, verse 24 has a very specific application in, in terms of the context of Jesus and this the dealing with the, the leadership, dealing with the people at this point. But it also has a broader application. And again, I would just look at verse 24 And I would say, see the book of Proverbs, (laughs) because it's filled with these kinds of proverbial statements. You you hear one from one person. It sounds like they're right. The Proverbs say, "Uh, get a second opinion. Get a third opinion. Make sure you're making an accurate judgment before you reach a conclusion. And again, that's just an uh, application principle. All right, let's move on then to verse 24 because this paragraph which extends over to verse 31 is again you've seen this over and over again how are people responding to Jesus how are how are the how are the common ordinary people how are the crowds how even are members of the Sanhedrin in in this case it tells us verse 25 some of the people of Jerusalem so this isn't the Pharisees This isn't a broad statement of the crowds. This isn't the temple police that had been hired to to, to arrest Jesus. John just says, some of the people of Jerusalem. Is not this the man whom they seek to kill, i.e. the Pharisees? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities? That's how the ESV translates that term. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Can it be that the Sanhedrin really knows that this is the Christ? Remember, Christ is Greek for the Hebrew Messiah. So let's paraphrase it. That nobody is doing anything to this man right now. That nobody's arresting him. That nobody in the Sanhedrin is challenging him. Could it be that they secretly know That this is the Messiah? So you can see what is happening is, as Jesus is teaching and doing these wonderful messianic miracles and so on, there is confusion, there's division, and people are trying to figure out what is going on. I'm hearing the rumors that the Sanhedrin want to kill him, but he's speaking openly. He's in the temple. He's teaching, and nobody's doing anything. Maybe they secretly know he is the Messiah. Verse 27 is a reference, and John does this masterfully, of one of the popular myths about Messiah in the early first century. Verse 27, but we know when this man, we know where this man comes from. When the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. That's a popular myth. That's not a prophecy out of the Old Testament. And when they say, we know where this man comes from, they know he's from Nazareth. They know he grew up in Nazareth. They know about his parents in Nazareth. No one will know where Messiah comes from. That's not true. That's not a prophetic statement out of the Old Testament. It's a popular myth. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, So Jesus knows what they're thinking, knows what they're saying, knows about this popular myth. So he responds, you know me. I'm in verse 29. You know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him. And he sent me. And so you you have, again, what we've seen over and over and over and over again in the Gospel of John. Jesus is trying to move these people from thinking just temporally and physically to thinking eternally and spiritually. Yes, you know me. You know where I'm from Nazareth. You know where I came from but I have not come on my own accord. Now Jesus is not talking about coming from Nazareth. He's talking about coming from heaven in obedience to the Father. And so this is what he's been saying over and over and over again in the Gospel of John. So he's back to that theme. But the reason you're not responding is you do not know him. You do not know the one true and only God. So you're not going to know me, and you're not going to know he sent me. So Jesus, it's really quite fascinating how the Lord does this. He destroys this popular myth by, in effect, saying, you know I'm from Nazareth. You know that's where I grew up. You know about my parents. But what you really don't understand is what I've been telling you over and over and over again. I've come from the Father who's in heaven. I've been sent by the Father to bring salvation to you. And you don't know him. So that's an, it's a very significant claim that he's making about himself, but about them as well. Verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him. Why? And this is something we've seen over and over again, and we're going to see it over and over again until we get to Jerusalem when Jesus hangs on a cross. His hour had not yet come. And that hour is the hour of his crucifixion, of his, of his sacrifice. And so you just see again, these remarkable interplays between the temporal and the eternal and the providence of God why are they not successful in stopping him, arresting him, ending his public ministry? Because his hour had not yet come. And so you see then, yet many of the people believed in him. And they said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Another popular myth, I suppose. And so there, there's, again, you can see trying to process and figure out everything that's happening, everything that Jesus is saying, everything that Jesus is doing. Some people are responding in faith. Some people are believing in him. Others are still asking questions. Well, when Messiah does come, won't he do more miracles than what this guy's done? More signs than what this guy's done? Now, listen, I'm hoping you're not confused. I don't think you are, but I want to remind you of something that is consistently taught throughout the bible it's both in terms of of God revealing himself to ancient Israel as well as as responding to Jesus the final revelation of God Jesus divides people Jesus causes division some people are going to respond to Jesus and accept him believe in him, some people are going to forthrightly, defiantly, intensely reject him, and others are going to say, I need more time. I need more evidence. I need need more convincing. I'm not yet ready to make a decision. That was true in AD 32. When these events occurred, it is true in 2020. I have seen that over and over and over again in my own public ministry, as well as in my ministry in churches, as well as in my ministry with young young adults. That is how people respond. They either accept it, they willfully reject it, or they say, you know, I need more time. I'm not ready, but I'm still open to hearing. And so that's what you see here. You see multiple responses to Jesus, and John, the writer of this gospel, is trying, trying to to summarize that for us. Okay, now before we move on, any questions? Are you with me? Uh, yes. I, I go ahead. Yeah. Uh, I don't know who's first, so somebody, Fred, go ahead. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering how many verses uh, 28.
1: And 29,
0: Fred, you're uh, really not coming out very loudly. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm just not hearing you.
1: Okay. I'm, I'm wondering how verses yeah. 28 and 29 re, uh, relate to messianic prophecy of, of, of Jesus.
0: Oh, good. Yes. Uh, well, they um, I'm not sure how to answer that because they, they directly relate to messianic prophecies about the coming of the messiah um is is that what you're asking no let me think about it oh (laughs) i mean i mean the answer to your question is um yes they do relate to messianic prophecies in the old testament um I, I would think here of, for example, just one example, one or two examples, what Psalm 2 says, what Psalm 110, 1, 2, 3, 4 says. It's it, in, in the Hebrew, in those passages, it's the difference between Yahweh and Adonai. Yahweh sending Adonai. Yahweh saying to Adonai, sit at my right hand until I put everything under your feet. Uh, in Psalm, uh, uh, you are my son. I'm, I'm granting you inheritance. I'm going to send you to crush the rebellion. I mean, that relationship between the persons of the Godhead are very evident, even in Old Testament prophecies. And in what Jesus is doing in those two verses is summarizing that in, in two really pithy statements that are really accusatory to these people. You you don't know him. (laughs) You don't know God the Father. That's why you're not responding to me. And because you don't know him, you're never gonna put all this stuff together that the Old Testament prophecies say about me. And again, that is it's it's exactly the same thing you see today. The hardness of people's heart towards scripture. The hardness of people's heart Toward things of God. And yet, it is, it is still God through his spirit at work, softening those hearts, making those hearts open to the truth, and then Lord willing, over time eventually receiving that truth. Russ, you were going to ask a question.
2: Yeah, I have a technical question on some semiotics here in the, um, it refers, you've referred several times to the Pharisees. It mentions here the chief we referred to them synonymously with the Sanhedrin. Um, were the scribes and the Sadducees also included in that group, or were they somehow excluded from this rendering only? Um, or is there some distinction there that I should take from the fact that the Sadducees seem to be left out of that?
0: Uh, but left
1: out of that, you mean uh, this the,
2: What we're studying right now—it mentions Pharisees by name, chief priests. I assume is equivalent with the Sanhedrin, Um, but I don't know if it includes the Sadducees, the two bodies that were arguing with one another at the end, or am I just reading too much into that?
0: Yeah, you—I think you might be reading a little too much into it, and I'm not exactly sure if I completely understand your question. But in this particular section, and you'll see it in the next section, chapter 8, as well. Jesus is primarily here dealing with the Pharisees. The Sadducees, uh, you know, they are a large, as a matter of fact, the Sadducees were the majority on the Sanhedrin in the early first century. They were the majority party. The Pharisees were the minority party. But the Pharisees, and, and that's really important to remember that, the Pharisees were the spiritual leaders, they were the ones that looked at the entire Old Testament as valid and authoritative, whereas the Sadducees only looked at the first five books. They rejected everything else. And the Pharisees believed in a resurrection. The Pharisees were the theological conservatives. But the Pharisees also, as we have talked, and I'll remind you, were the legalistic champions of the law. Right. We keep the law meticulously, and that's the key to our salvation. And one final point about the Pharisees. The Pharisees were much more popular with the crowds than the Sadducees. The Sadducees were were the the rich. They they accommodated to Rome. If you ever go to Jerusalem, I I will show you the the homes of the Sadducees. They're on the west side of Temple Mount. They lived well. But the Pharisees lived among the common people, south of the temple where the common ordinary people lived and that's why the common ordinary people liked the pharisees Uh, i mean the common ordinary people appreciated the pharisees because they lived among them they they taught them and they were the patriots they they were the uh i'll use a phrase we used to they were the (laughs) nationalists, and they were they were adamantly opposed to rome whereas the sadducees were very accommodational to rome but here, what what is primarily going on uh, when 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 John uses the Jews, and you'll see here in verse thirty-two, he very specifically mentions the Pharisees. Pharisees. But in this section, it will continue into chapter eight. The primary uh, opponents of Jesus are the Sadducees. I mean, are the, the Pharisees. Pharisees,
2: not the Sadducees.
0: Did I answer your question?
2: Yeah, well, the reason I'm asking is that, you know, obviously they had to take a vote at some point, and they were seeking to kill him. So how did this minority party usurp the majority that was the kind of go-along-to-get-along folks to then, say, crucify him? You know, so I'm seeing is, is, you know, they're setting up against the, you know, the green analogy today with... He's setting up against the green party and the environmental activists right but the but the republicans and the democrats seem to be okay with him um so either they're both included in that and i'm missing something
0: well or... everybody everybody is opposed to jesus the pharisees the chief priests the scribes the scribes served served the pharisees they they were they served the pharisees mm-hmm. but everybody's opposed to jesus but for different reasons. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, and that's what will pull the Pharisees and Sadducees and the Herodians together. Not because they agree with one another, but they have a common enemy. They all hate Jesus. but did, they, all, they all oppose Jesus, albeit for different reasons, but they oppose Jesus.
2: And this, Jesus these is, passages are dealing specifically with the points that the Pharisees are
0: that's right. So the because Sadducees he,
2: are ex, it's specifically excluded, but only from this piece.
0: That's right. And and it is because you see this interaction with the crowds and the larger the larger lay person of, of Jerusalem at this time. Uh, uh, and and, okay. and it's, it's really this is really an insight into the political and religious culture of Jerusalem at the time of Jesus. And if you don't, and I, I just tried to give you a summary. I hope that was somewhat helpful. But if you don't keep yeah, that in yeah. mind, it's confusing because you, you, you. And then you are going to come up later to the Herodians. Who in the world are they? <laughs> a very, very, very small group right. of Jewish leaders. But it's just each one of them. I by mean group there. Each one of these groups is going to oppose Jesus and hate Jesus for different reasons. But it's like anything in a political and religious culture. If you have an enemy and it's a common enemy, you set aside your differences to get rid of that enemy. In a time of war in the United States in World War II, the Republicans and the Democrats came together because they had a common enemy, Japan and, and Hitler. You know, mean, the political differences were sort of irrelevant. Well, that's what's, that's a horrible analogy, but it just in the sense that Pharisees and Sadducees and Herodian chief priests are all going to come together because they all hate Jesus, albeit for different reasons, but they all hate Jesus.
1: Okay, well, Jim, Jim uh, on that point, uh, Zacchaeus, he was part of that group. He was a tax collector. Yeah,
0: okay. He wasn't on the Sanhedrin. He was a tax collector.
1: Okay, he wasn't He was in
0: Jericho. He didn't live he in Jerusalem. He lived in Jericho.
1: He wasn't either party. then.
0: Of those no, days. no, no. He was a... Ta- but now, Nicodemus... Yeah, okay. Joseph of Arimathea, they they were on the Sanhedrin. They they were Pharisees on the Sanhedrin.
1: And didn't didn't some of those though actually that message get through. Oh yeah,
0: yeah, they they come to
1: faith. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking I I didn't want to throw the whole kit and caboodle out because yeah. Well I think it, he, he was affected. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, that's
0: right. I mean that we saw it in John in chapter three, and then we know that Nicodemus. We'll see him coming up here in, in the next chapter, actually. But then and when Jesus dies, Nicodemus, Joseph, Arimathea, they take the body of Jesus and, and, and bury it, yeah. All right, uh, good question interaction. I hope the rest of you didn't get lost there with all that. Verse 32, again, this uh, relates a little bit what Russ was saying, but the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things. And remember, the Pharisees are the populace. The Pharisees lived among the poor people south of Temple Mount. They, they, the poor people liked the Pharisees. So the Pharisees who are their advocate, hear the crowds and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. So their response to this, the response to what all the people are saying is, they send temple police, that term I read from the ESV translation, that term officers, is a reference to the temple police. These are not Roman military personnel. This isn't the Roman army under Pilate. This is the temple police that served at the authority of the Sanhedrin. And so almost all of the temple police were Levites. These are Jews who are you know, wearing military uniforms, carrying Glock pistols. Uh, hat, you know, I'm, I'm being humorous. Nobody's laughing. But it's, it's, so these are not Roman military. These are Jewish. These are Levites. But their role is to serve the Sanhedrin and keep peace on Temple Mount. Well, they sent these guys to arrest Jesus. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer than I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said another, again, in the context, the Pharisees heard what the crowds were saying, send the temple police to arrest Jesus. Jesus continues to talk to the people. And that's what John is doing. And so the Jews then said, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion? among the Greeks, and teach the Greeks. Now if you are familiar, I hope you are to some extent, if you're familiar with what is happening to the Jewish people, ever since 722 BC and 586 BC, and then on going from that, the Jews are being dispersed throughout the world. It's called the diaspora. The Greek word there, if you would read Greek in verse 35, That term dispersion is diaspora. The Jews are being spread throughout the world. And so they're saying, well, does he mean he's going to go to Greek Jewish people in Rome, in Corinth, in Ephesus? What does he mean when he's saying, you'll seek me and you will find me? Where I come, you cannot come. See, Jesus, again, is speaking eternal spiritual truth because he's talking about going to the cross. Going back to the Father, his ascension, and they don't even understand it. They don't even get it. They think he's talking about, he's going to join the Jews of the diaspora. So that, that's it. Now, verse 37, on the last day of the feast, remember, it would be the last day of the feast of booze, the last day of the feast of tabernacles. It was called the great day. Now, let me briefly tell you what happened on that day. What would happen on that day is the high priest would send a variety of priests down to the Pool of Siloam, which is south of Temple Mount. We have have found the Pool of Siloam. It's being excavated. We know exactly where it was. The road that goes from the Pool of Siloam all the way up to Temple Mount has been discovered. You can now walk it. The last time I was in Jerusalem, they just began to open that up. And so we know exactly what he's talking about here. So on that day, the chief, the high priest would send priests down to the pool of Siloam. They would get quite a few buckets of water, bring it up to Temple Mount, and then he would pour out this water over the sacrifices. That is relating to Isaiah 55, 1, and a variety of other passages in the Old Testament. So on that last day... When the, when the oblation of water from the pool of Siloam would be poured out over the sacrifice, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Wow. So while this water oblation is occurring, Jesus stands up and says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Very similar to what he said to the woman at the well in Samaria back in chapter 4. Then Jesus, 38, remember, he's moving them from temporal, physical, to eternal, spiritual. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. All right, what is going on? John adds in verse 39, you already know this, but I'm going to stress it again, the language of the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, that the new covenant will replace the old covenant and the sign of the new covenant will be the coming of the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit cannot come until Jesus is glorified. Death, burial, resurrection, and so it, this is marvelous. These these people are not understanding all this; they're not getting all this. But again, you see what Jesus is doing. He's taking a temporal, physical event, pouring out that water on the, the sacrifices as, as as a part of a, of the, the the material that's in Old Testament prophetic passages, and Jesus applies this to the eternal spiritual truths about the new covenant, about the coming of the Holy Spirit. Because, and you read that in Ezekiel 36 particularly, the, the water, the fresh, refreshing water that comes from the Holy Spirit that cleanses you from sin and inaugurates and begins the new covenant where God puts his law in our heart. I mean, all of those wonderful truths, all of that is what is going on here. And so, you, you again, you, you see this tremendously important strategy of Jesus talking about a temporal physical event and giving eternal spiritual application to it.
1: Jim, are most of the uh, disciples uh with him and uh they're hearing this and they're gaining greater insight the more they're with him and the longer yes. he gives these illustrations yes. and parables. Yes. Okay,
0: absolutely. All right, now, look again at verse 40 and following. Jesus divides people. When they heard these words, what words? What we just read about. Some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Deuteronomy eighteen fifteen. Others said, this is the Christ, meaning this is the Messiah. Verse, next verse. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David, from Bethlehem, the village where David was? (laughs) So a third group is saying, wait a minute. Messiah is not to come from Galilee. Remember, Nazareth is in Galilee. He's supposed to come from Bethlehem. Does Jesus come from Bethlehem? Yes, he was born in Bethlehem. And so you have, again, the the, the crowds, the people are responding with all—now listen, it's a very important statement—with all of the Old Testament prophecies as the grid— through which they're processing all of this. And one group says, this is the prophet that Moses talked about in Deuteronomy 18.15. Others are saying, this is the Messiah. And others are saying, but wait a minute, we're willing to accept that, but this guy's from Galilee. Messiah is supposed to come from Bethlehem. So that reflects their ignorance of where Jesus was born. But you're seeing, this is what's really important. The people are processing the question, who is this man, through the grid of Old Testament prophecy. And all three of these responses are valid, accurate responses. He is the prophet Moses talked about in Deuteronomy 1815. He is the Messiah. And yeah, we're a little confused because he's from Galilee. I thought Messiah was supposed to be from Bethlehem, but that's, that's Micah. Chapter 5, verse 2. They understood that. And so you have this marvelous summary that people are responding through the grid of what the Old Testament prophecies had taught. That's good. They're evaluating what Jesus is saying and doing through the grid of Old Testament prophecies. That's good. And then John says, so there was a division. Some of them wanted to arrest him but no one laid hands on him. Now there's a fourth response, and it's a response of the temple police, the officers. Look at verse 44. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, why why did you not bring him to us? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. Remember the temple police they are Levites. So they, too, have the grid of the law and the Old Testament, and they're saying, no one ever spoke like this before. The Pharisees answered, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? Wait a minute. You guys have being deceived. We are the leaders. We haven't believed in him. But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. i tell you, man, in verse 49, that is a very condescending statement. It's like today, the meritocracy, the elite speaking in a pejorative way about the crowd, about the common ordinary person. We haven't believed in, but this crowd does not know the law is accursed. Does our law judge Nicodemus then? Now remember, and and Fred had alluded to this earlier, this this is Nicodemus of chapter 3. Nicodemus is a Pharisee on the Sanhedrin. Nicodemus, who had gone on to him before, and it was one of them, meaning one of the Pharisees, said, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? So Nicodemus is an advocate of Jesus. He's saying, wait a minute. We should give a hearing. We should be. We should learn what he says. They reply, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So you, you have this ongoing division, but those last verses that we just read, here's the Pharisaic leadership condescending, looking down on the people. Nicodemus trying to, to, to get them to think clearly, but nah, they're not open to that at all. So chapter seven comes to an end. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult chapter in some ways, like chapter six was. But at the same time, you're starting to see what is happening. This is in Jerusalem in chapter seven. And he's causing division. And um, even among the Pharisees, there's division. As you see, Nicodemus standing up as his advocate. But for the most part, the leadership is rejecting Jesus and continuing in terms of their plot to try to kill him. This causes us now to shift to chapter 8. There's an introduction to chapter 8, which I want to say something about but chapter eight is one of the greatest chapters in the gospel of john i call this chapter the great debate because it is a long chapter where there's a debate between jesus and the pharisees in the treasury on temple mount it's one of the most extraordinary passages in the bible woody yeah um well i have the esd as you do and and I noticed I noted this this morning where
1: it said the earlier manuscripts do not include you know chapter seven fifty three verse fifty three to eight eleven. That's right. And uh, at some point you're probably going to explain that in the next few days
0: maybe. Well, I'll probably give a shot at it right now, okay? Thank you. All right. now I just want to make sure the continuity between chapter seven and chapter eight, is the focus remains on the Pharisees? The focus remains on the Pharisees in their ongoing debate and really hatred of Jesus, and it's going to culminate at the end of chapter eight when Jesus will claim to be Yahweh. It's it's really quite a wonderful passage. Now, to what to what Woody said, um, it depends on your translation. Again, I read from the ESV translation, but. Um, all of your translations, I think, I'm, I'm almost sure all of them, are going to have a footnote or they're going to have a little header at the top or they're going to have a a little note somewhere in the middle of, of, of the section after verse 11. But um, chapter 753, the last verse through the first 11 verses of chapter 8, are not in the earliest manuscripts of the New Testament that we have. And that raises a number of issues, um, and it, it's probably easiest to say to, 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 to summarize it in this way: these, this passage that I will look at—it's the very familiar passage of the woman caught in adultery—is um, is probably an event that occurred, but it is not recorded in the Gospel of John. It was added by a scribe later on. And so, therefore, almost all New Testament authorities, almost all students of the New Testament Greek, almost all expositors, would agree that this is probably a true event, but it's not canonical. It does not appear in the original autograph, the original Gospel of John. But almost everyone believes it's, it's a valid event in the ministry of Jesus, but it was added later on as a matter of fact it was added a couple of hundred years later to the gospel of john and so therefore it i don't want to make a big deal of this but it's probably not in the original autograph of the gospel of john and why it was added and and why it 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 ended up we don't know there is no answer to that question but yet at the same time it fits with the ministry of Jesus, it fits with his temperament, it fits with his grace, it fits with his mercy, it fits with his compassion. And in all likelihood it happened, but it was not the original part of the original autograph of the Gospel of John. So I'm going to go through it. I'm going to, we're gonna, it's not difficult at all, but I'm gonna go through it and, and, and assume it was an event that was in the ministry of Jesus but it was not part of the Gospel of John. So they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Remember, they were on the Temple Mount having that discussion So Jesus leaves. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. And that's a very normal thing Jesus did when he's in Jerusalem. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst they said to him teacher this woman was caught in the act of adultery now that's pretty explicit doesn't take a lot of imagination but it would seem that this is a setup that this is a this is a case that these guys went into this woman's house possibly she's a prostitute possibly she a woman, and caught her in the act of adultery. She was having sexual intercourse with a man who was not her husband. Now, in the law of Moses, command to stone such a woman, which is true. That is in the law of Moses. And if you're really interested, you can check that out in the book of, of Deuteronomy. Teacher, uh, or verse 6, They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Okay, again, that's very consistent. What do you say? What should we do with this woman? Jesus bent down and wrote his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And at one more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go from now on, sin no more. This is again, it's a very familiar um, narrative in the ministry of Jesus. And the focus is, again, the intent of the Pharisees to trick Jesus, to test Jesus, to trip him up, and the response of Jesus to focus on their inconsistency, their hypocrisy, and zero in on this woman. Does he condemn her? No. Does he call for her to repent? Yes. And so you see, this is very consistent. With a lot of the ministry narratives of Jesus, this isn't unusual. It isn't uh, atypical. It's very typical, and so again, in all likelihood, this is an event that truly occurred, but it was not a part of the original autograph of the Gospel of John. All right, um, I looked at my watch. Now I probably should stop. Now, what I would if you have time to do this, I, I would encourage you to do this. We'll start with verse 12 next week of chapter 8. Read the rest of the Gospel of of John chapter 8 through through verse 59. It's a long chapter, but it is an intense debate between Jesus and the Pharisees. And when you read it, if you have it, if you can do this, it would really help you prepare for next week. Try to read it in one sitting. And you get a sense of the tension. You get you get a sense of the of the animosity, and you get a sense of of how Jesus, as he is hearing these accusatory statements from the spiritual leadership, how he responds, and among other things, he says to them, "You are of your father, the devil." That that is an incredibly astonishing thing to say to the spiritual leadership of first century Israel. And I want to look at this next week. I I would love to get through this whole chapter all in next week. I don't know if we'll be able to do it. There's a lot there. But if you have an opportunity to read 12 through 59, that'd be great. It would prepare you for this, the big picture overview of what really is going on in one of the greatest chapters in the Gospel of John. Because it's going to end up with Jesus claiming to be Yahweh. And we'll get to that next week. Well, I hope this was a little bit of a hard beginning there. Glenn, thanks for solving the problem for us and we'll look forward to seeing everybody next week. Let me pray here and and then I'll let you go. Lord, we've dealt with another um, complicated and somewhat difficult passage, the closing part of chapter seven, but we see again what Jesus is trying to do to get people to focus on eternal spiritual things And now the various responses to Jesus are just, again, coming to the surface over and over and over again. Jesus is controversial. Jesus is provocative. Jesus does cause people to divide. And that is true in 2020. Some people accept him and believe in him. Some people defiantly reject him. Others, I need more time. I'm not ready. I need more information. I need to reason more. Lord, that's true today. I've seen it over and over again. I'm sure these men have too. I thank you that each man, I trust this is true, that's listening and been a part of the study, knows you, is walking with you, is a follower of you, and so that is why as we study the Word of God, we learn more about you, we learn more about Jesus, and our faith and our trust deepens. Therefore, our commitment deepens we want to be men of faith, men of God who represent you well. Help us to do that and be that. For we are your ambassadors of your kingdom. You are our king. You are our Lord. We want to represent you well. Help us to do that. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Have a great rest of the week.